Hello and welcome to episode 281 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And we are coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion, Seattle Seahawks. <laughs> oh, tough, tough week for the Seahawks. Let me just but remind you, Super Bowl 48 was a long fucking time ago. It really was in so, so many ways. But let me tell you, excitement over the Seattle Mariners is running high in this household. There we go. We have just watched the final out of the Mariners beating the A's 4-2 to two here. Move the practice facility to Renton. <laughs> I don't know the baseball teams have <laughs> practice facilities. It's in Peoria. I suppose, yes, the spring training complex. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about them a little later. Your favorite segment will obviously return. Cool on spring training. But for now, it's time to talk about the season. Hello. Because it is our second week of fresh hop season, <laughs> S-Z-N. And that means it's time for us to drink Fremont's Field to ferment fresh hop pale ale, the gold standard when it comes to fresh hops. The gold standard, definitely our first ever fresh hop. I would assume so. Yeah. I I had never had a fresh hop before. All the hops that I had before then were <laughs> old and stale, <laughs> painfully, painfully <laughs> stale before this moment. So they, as we talked about last year on the pod, they made a change. There used to be you'd get various different hops. That was fun. You get your fun. citra. You get your simcoe. Uh-huh. What was the third one? Uh, another hop, yeah. <laughs> oh, thanks. Centennial. Centennial was the third. So now it's just Centennial and Simcoe are in those single version that they make. Wow, and they shove both of the hops in here. Oh, yeah. Dang. They took the one hop and put it put it in the bottle, and then they took the se- or the can in this case. And then they took the second hop and put it in there. Okay. And now you got both hops. Uh, their description of this. Field f- brewing is the craft of blending science with artistry, then introducing the mystical. Field to Ferment exemplifies this adventure and represents a colossal collaboration between the brewery and our hop farmers. Nothing is fresher, nothing is better for a brewer. So please do enjoy this beer absolutely fresh and enjoy the adventure this beer represents. Let's hurry up and drink it then. <laughs> God. If it's that much of a hurry. There's a lot of urgency in that description. <laughs> I mean, there is. I don't think they necessarily mean... Like, don't wait five minutes while describing the beer before before drinking it. Uh, light toast this week. But first off, from this game that we just watched, literally added to the notes because I was watching the game beforehand, mm. Mitch Hanniger's 100th career home run You're earlier welcome. this evening to help give the Mariners and a little blast. insurance here. I mean, Mitch Hanniger sitting on 38 home runs, I believe, for the season. You've had so many fresh hops and don't know how to pour a beer into a cup. But I don't have a second hand. I'm holding the microphone. A and B. Actually, pouring it in there is technically the correct way to do it. Really, with with the with the head. I, I once w- watched a video that Raj did with someone from Anheuser Busch who pointed out that would you rather have the carbonation go out in the can or in your, you know, be drinking the carbonation? I don't know what that means. Well, you don't want like all the carbonation. You want the beer. So you want the carbonation to pour out and rise up in the glass. I don't know if this is actually true, but that's what was on this one video I watched. So I'm going with it. <laughs> Pretty baffled. 
You clearly uh, are. I, I the totally, listener cannot hear and see Tristan's totally derailed face. by this thought. No, but 38 home runs, though. If Mitch Haniger gets to 40 home runs, like this is a true power hitter. We're talking Griffey baseball style. He would have a giant upper body and a little tiny lower body. Like he would be Mickey Tettleton if his upper body would be. Or, three or Dave times. Valley. Dave, yeah, Dave Valley. I don't know. If, Quite the power hitter that Mitch Haniger is. All the is, catchers but, were for some reason. But 40 home runs is a, a notable amount. I mean, I remember when Griffey hit 45 in 1993, the season of reference. Uh, <laughs> the only season that matters. <laughs> uh, it's like New York Times, the paper of record. The season of record is the 1993 season. This is a new podcast thing. It's the only season we recognize. <laughs> the season, even though the Mariners didn't even make the playoffs that year, it wasn't even a year that they built statues specifically for. Well, both those players are on the team. It's it's been immortalized. I, I L- literally, I what it. is more important, Ken Griffey baseball or going to the playoffs? Yeah. Uh, okay, our, our other toast this week to uh, Brianna Stewart for making. But Griffey these. hit forty five home runs that year, and. F- 38 that Hanniger is at is not far off. We're talking, we you know the home run hitters from the year because, again, immortalized. We've got Barry Bonds, we've got Juan Gonzalez, and we've got Kegger. Barry Bonds hit 46 that year, right? Bonds hit 46. I think Juan Gonzalez was at 44, I want to say. Somewhere in that ballpark. You're, you're going to look this up. Of That's course. important information. Uh, our other toast this week to uh, Brianna Stewart for making the all WNBA defensive team, the second team this year. Uh, we'll have more on Stewie and the storm coming up. But for now, it's time for one of my favorite segments, which is a listener email. And we'll toast oh, yes. to this email from friend of the pod, Zach Jabal. <laughs> I, who, I uh, had a feeling that's who it was from. Yeah, responded to our query about Fresh Hop beers. Oh. So I thought I could offer a bit of insight into the whole does Fresh Hop beer season exist elsewhere conversation. The short answer is no. There we go. Because freshly harvested hops either need to be immediately dried and preserved or used in beer within 48 hours as the usual figure, Fresh Hop beers have only been possible in and around hop-growing regions. While there are small hop-growing regions in the Northeast, as of 2019, 96% of hops grown in America were grown in Washington, Oregon, and Idaho, with Washington alone accounting for approximately 70% of U.S. hops. That's almost as much as their shares of unlimited hydroplane. That is incredible. While there might be the occasional small production fresh hop beer in other places, it's simply not viable without access to the vast amount of hops here in the Pacific Northwest. Interestingly, though, I just interviewed the CEO of Yakima City, or Yakima Chief Hops, I should say, the largest producer in the state. They do overnight ship some fresh hops to breweries around the country, and for the first time this year, they are exploring freeze-drying fresh hops with the idea that they could be used either in other regions or even to make fresh hop beers in other seasons. So it's possible we could be enjoying fresh hop beers year-round in the near future. I, I just don't know if the hops can be as fresh, though. I, I mean, I almost in some ways don't want it because, I mean, part of what makes what? Fresh Hop season so great is that it's a season. Here's the thing. We have to, we're in the fucking champagne region of Fresh Hops right now, right? <laughs> we really are, yes. Like, if you're having a Fresh Hop, you know you're in the Pacific Northwest, and that's a beautiful thing. But, and something I mean, that- they do distribute the beer outside of the Pacific Northwest, potentially, depending on which brewery it's coming from. We have got to, 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 as they would say... We actually, for next week, by the way, have a non-Pacific Northwest brewery fresh hop. Really? We do. You've got to put a wall around the state of Washington, though. 
right? B- just build the build the wall around the state of Washington. <laughs> like recruiting when it comes to fresh hops. Have you drank this? I have drank this it. This is like the best beer I've had all year. Well, Maybe sure. it's because previously I had a Bud Light Seltzer Pumpkin Spice. <laughs> <laughs> what a back-to-back. And by comparison, it's it's tasting pretty excellent. But you have to say, Juan Gonzalez had 46 home runs in the 93 okay, season. He also had 92 season, he had 43. There you go. Wow, of course. So How could I forget? I, I appreciate the insight on the Fresh Hops, though. And I really... Zach is also at the moment DM'd us Pride. a Mariner's meme from at Mariner's memes with uh, distracted, the distracted boyfriend meme, one of my favorites, mm-hmm. with being distracted from the Seahawks by the Mariners. There we go. When was the last time that happened? I can't imagine. Uh, so we have no search for Seattle's best fried chicken this week. We're going to continue that search next week. But you know what we can talk about? Really? Philadelphia's best fried Phil- chicken. <laughs> Philadelphia food talk. Yeah. No, Philadelphia has good food. They do. I mean, I didn't even really get to explore a lot of it. Like, obviously, my guide for places I wanted to go was primarily from when Joe House and Chris Ryan did a Philadelphia food tour in Chris Ryan's native uh, city on House of Carbs. Mm-hmm. So one place in particular stood out to me that I remembered from this, and that was Federal Donuts. And then when I went and looked at the website, I did not remember that Federal Donuts also serves fried chicken. I saw that photo and I was like, are these? I actually for a second was like, is this a donut? (laughs) A little confused. (laughs) We've been through the whole search for Seattle's best chicken. (laughs) I I mean. (laughs) And I still can't tell the difference between a donut and chicken. (laughs) Yeah, you might not be able to tell the different cuts of chicken apart, but you should at least be able to identify them (laughs) from a fucking donut. It took, I thought about it for slightly too long. So they, well, we'll get to that. For Friday morning, uh, I wanted to go there for breakfast and it felt like the fried chicken was going to be a bit aggressive since I was also planning to get a cheesesteak for lunch. Had to do that on my first trip to Philadelphia. It was like I had to hit the landmarks, the Rocky Steps, the Liberty Bell cheesesteaks. Did you actually do those things? In that order, yes. Wait, really? Yes. Wow. I went to Philadelphia and I don't think I saw any of those things. (laughs) I mean, I had had a Philly cheesesteak. I, I, in fact, in one day had two Philly cheesesteaks. I mean, the thing I realized getting the cheesesteaks is you really need to go with someone else because Pat's and Gino's are right across from the street from each other, mm. like literally across the street. So you can just get one of each and split the split the two different sandwiches and try them both and have the perfect head-to-head comparison just like that. But by myself, I didn't have that, didn't, wasn't able to avail myself of that opportunity, but so for breakfast, I wanted to go with something on the lighter side. So, of course, I merely had their chicken sandwich at mm-hmm. Federal Donuts along with uh, it, one of their donuts. And it was quite good. How Not, are the donuts? Tell me, tell me about it. So they, like, like they're kind of fancy, but they're, they don't have any filled donuts, which are my favorite. So that was a little bit of a disappointment for me. Okay. It's all rings and like frosting, you know, or, or icing that goes in the middle kind of like uh what is that legendary does that that sounds pretty great to me oh i mean it's very good it's just i i do prefer filled donuts okay but so i mean by the way my my review of the i did the pat's cheese steak it kind of tastes like cheese steak i, I don't know if it was all that I, different from what i, I didn't know Seattle. i was so restricted by food that was around electric factory <laughs> mm-hmm. 
where I just like it was like I'm just gonna go get cheese the best rated cheesesteak nearby. Uh-huh. So I don't even know what places we went to. Wow. Keep a list. Keep a spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> I actually I would appreciate that more than I would keeping a beer spreadsheet. Yeah, I food so. spreadsheet. Uh, did you do you did whiz right? Oh yeah. Whiz, did you do ketchup? No. Hmm. No. Did you think about it? No. Really? No. All right. It's not necessary. You got to, you got enough cheese whiz on there to drown it. It's great. Okay. And also just like the natural juices of the the meat. Okay, so federal donuts. So I had the chicken sandwich. It was good. But then I I actually got a DM from Zach Jabal, who was figuring very prominently in the beginning of this podcast. (laughs) We probably should have just had him on his third father brother this week. And he said that the fried chicken was so good that he went back. Let me see if I can quote this directly. I think it was three times in a single trip. So I was like, wow, this really emboldens me to uh, potentially go back twice in the two days I spend in Philadelphia. Yeah, three times in three days. Wow. The fried chicken is excellent there. Oh, my God. Okay, so you had this fried chicken. Can you confirm? I did. So so I was on, in Philadelphia. Friday was the tourist day and, and the, had that for breakfast. Then spent the weekend on the Jersey <laughs> Shore. I don't know why it sounds like like you're like Friday was the tour. Like you're like had a curated trip for you. Oh, I curated or, my own trip. Whatever. Friday was the tourist. A day. toast also to Daniel Larue on his nuptials. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, lovely, lovely wedding. Uh, <clears throat> Sunday was in New York. Uh, the his his uh, the literal toast to Daniel Larue. Yes, cap space. <laughs> it's easy to remember. Uh, <laughs> Sunday was in New York, posted the photo of where I ate there at uh, No, No, No in K-Town, which was quite good. It was the first ramen I've had in like a year and a half. Wow. Because ramen is, is not a good to go. Other people are going back to shows for the first time. Remember they're playing shows for the first exactly. time in two years. You're like, this is my first ramen oh, in two years. what a big mom- a momentous occasion, truly. I had uh, Dombo. Yeah, I saw that. How did you see that? It was in my compost. Oh, <laughs> That's actually really funny. <clears throat> okay. So Sunday back or Monday back in Philadelphia and on my way to go to Sixers Media Day, had to stop and get lunch. Mm-hmm. And I went back to Federal Donuts and this time had the the three-piece fried chicken which comes with like a a kind of like a plain donut in addition to the fried chicken. For 10 bucks you're getting the three pieces of fried chicken and a donut. It, there's really something about just throwing in a donut that's like fucking miraculous. It's over the top. I'm sorry, but every restaurant needs to learn if you throw in a donut that it'll just like, I would pay the price for the chicken plus the donut. But if you throw it in, you feel like it's an extra oh, yeah. that makes it taste better. I mean, why don't we have a chicken and donut location here? They, these two things go great together. Do they? There's some places... No, we don't. I'm saying we should. No, no. Do they go well together? Not uh, do we have one. I know that we don't have one. I don't know that they necessarily do, but there's a place in LA that does it as well. That, that's What's pretty that called? Good. I'm going to LA in less than 24 hours. I forget the name off the top of my head. I'll have to look that here. up for you. So uh, I take the chicken with me to Sixers Media Day, and it's between my travel out there to uh, Camden, New Jersey, where the practice facility is located, <laughs> trying to actually figure out how to get in the practice. Not like Renton, Washington, where the Mariners practice <laughs> facility is located. <laughs> and then I wanted to wait through some of the more notable interviews before I actually started eating this chicken. It was over an hour 
between when I picked it up and actually ate it. Mm. And still, I would say that this was on par with any fried chicken that wow. I've had in Seattle. Uh, I got the the sweet. That honestly garlic. doesn't surprise me that Seattle would not have fried chicken that would compare with Philadelphia. I, mean, I don't know that you think of Philadelphia and think of fried chicken or vice versa. Uh, but culturally, how fried chicken has historically been prepared. Seattle is not a type I of city. I don't know that it's in that tradition. Is what you're saying? You don't. You're not saying that it's not in like a historically black I mean, I tradition. Think, I think that Federal Donuts is owned by the group that does Zahav and Goldie. I think. I think they're all together in a restaurant group. Is my recollection from that House of Carbs from many years ago? I don't know what Zahav and Goldie are, but I mean they're they're like Israeli restaurants. Oh, interesting. Mediterranean. Hmm. Okay. So it's not necessarily in, in that tradition, and so I had the soy garlic uh, sauce on the on the uh, fried chicken, and I would say what you it get to kind of a sauce. Yeah, mm. yeah, you get a variety of choices, and uh, I would say that what it kind of reminded me of was if you took pock pock R.I.P.'s fish sauce wings and did that style with fried chicken instead of just wings. Really, that's kind of what this was. I'm like. kind of anti fish sauce though. I mean, it wasn't fish sauce specifically, but it was the same kind of like sticky and sweet huh. kind of mixture. It was outstanding, right. even the, an hour plus after I got it. Damn. All right. So, very impressed by Federal right. Donuts. Well, shouts, shouts to Philly. I'm sure that was a frosty media day, by the way. <laughs> you know, it actually wasn't, really. Because Ben Simmons wasn't there. He wasn't there. No, <laughs> I mean, I, I missed the Doc Rivers and Daryl section of it. I prioritized fried chicken over getting there in time. <laughs> You prioritize chicken over Doc and Daryl. Oh, you know, with all due well, respect, you to could them. just DM Daryl every single year <laughs> on your birthday. I mean, like <laughs> that is true, I suppose. Uh, so I did. So that was probably the most contentious part of it. The players, you know, the, Matisse Thibel was actually kind <clears> of <throat> like uh, he was repeating people's questions to them a lot and like trying to like frame it. Appropriately, it was a little odd. Oh, he had media but you training know what? You know what he said? What did he say? To my question, good question. Wow. Did not did not have any concerns about what I was asking him. Wow. Let me tell you. Vibing with my fellow Husky. What, what, did he, what did you ask him? About translating his play with the Mike Australian. Mike Hopkins, should, should he be fired? No. Oh, no. <laughs> Australian You know, the team. Mike Hopkins zone has not been as effective since Matisse Thibel graduated. Really Do you have not, any thoughts on that? It's not been the same. Uh, about translating his aggressive offensive play with the Australian national team to an NBA setting. Mm. So. Good stuff. Good stuff. I asked a solid two questions. I felt good about that effort. Wow, I beat two, my line of both from from Matisse. No, the other one was of uh, Tyrese Maxey. Oh, I was gonna guess. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know. You ran out of Sixers players. You know, I, there's, there's some guard named Shake Milton. <clears throat> Shake Milton was there. Yeah, there we go. Uh, Shake Milton was asked whether he'd like uh bulked up during the off season. He said, I, I was looking at myself in the stream there and I look I look pretty swole. <laughs> that was a good moment. It was, a good, it was it was actually pretty pretty lighthearted, I would say. So it was a good time. All right. Well also we got another DM from front of the pod, Elliot Allen, who asked at what point do the Mariners get an emergency pod? So Oh, just wait for the hot takes. See us rise. It is really, really happy. I mean 
Uh, I really we... like this podcast where you're just reading DMs that we get. Yes. Should should we just get ahead and go into your favorite segment? No, no, no. Are we talking? Where do the Kraken sit? Like we haven't quite figured out where the Kraken fit in in the rundown. So the Kraken historically have been below the NBA Seattle update sponsored by Pagliacci Pizza, which uh, there hasn't been as much of lately. Although I suppose we did just get that from Sixers Media Day. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of the arena and, and the deepest Blazers team we've seen. <laughs> oh, Neil Walsh. Uh, uh, the... you, you do not think that's true? No, I don't think that adding Cody Zeller, Tony Snell, and Ben McLemore <laughs> has made them the deepest. I mean, Larry Nance Jr. is a very nice pickup. Damn! Roasting. <laughs> they made the Western Conference Finals two seasons, three seasons ago. Like, stop saying that your teams are better than the team that made the fucking Western Conference Finals because these teams aren't going to make it. Oh, <laughs> just wait till you see Tony, Tony Snell on the table. <laughs> I mean, look, I actually I had no idea that they signed any of those players you just named. So I'm pretty. I'm like, oh, the, all right, Tony Snell. I, I'm kind of into it for the veterans minimum. Snell and Zeller were great pickups. I'm just saying, the Neil Olshay. Team... Neil Olshay can do shit like that. Neil Olshay is a genius of signing those players. He's like, I don't know if I would say that. I feel like his the strength of the Blazers front office has been drafting guys in the second round and developing them. Seth Curry. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. He wasn't a minimum guy, but yes. But still, like uh, off off the trashy type players, right? Yeah. Uh, oh my God, who is that point guard? Not um, Shabazz Napier. Not Shabazz Napier. The point guard who got drafted by the Heat. Yeah, that's Shabazz Napier. Oh, okay, Shabazz Napier. <laughs> they yeah. traded for him. They yeah, they were pretty good at that with because you had Shabazz Napier and Maurice Harkless. Both they got for like top fifty five protected second round. They pack. just go out and find role players. It hasn't usually been like minimum free agent signings, though. Did they play that much to? They paid Aminu a little bit. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean he got like seven million, I think. Mm. So, right. I mean, I'm not, not criticizing their work. I'm just saying that in particular has not been their strength. So we'll see. If the team is healthy, they also they're going to win the West. The only, West is wide open. The it's only fine. actual centers they have on the roster are Yusuf Nurkic and Cody Zeller, neither of whom really known for their ability to stay on the court historically. Oh, it's a whole new year. So going to see a lot of Larry Nance Jr. at center, and also not known for his ability to stay on the court. So there's some in, some injury cascade risks at center. But that's okay because the Blazers have never had injuries at center before. Wow, the hate uh, begins early, right when training camp starts. You see Dame out there, fucking Dame's out there. He he's promoting the I, vaccine. Look, the oh, the Blazers last year were a hundred percent vaccinated, right? And if Cody Zeller and Tony Snell ain't fucking that up, they're still a hundred percent vaccinated, and that is an important thing to consider. I mean, I don't I don't know. I didn't see a stat on their vaccination levels from that, but the Dame's quote was awesome. A little skeptical about Chauncey. Dame's quote was awesome. <laughs> You're agreeing with that. <laughs> or it's the Kraken. They have played a game for the first time in franchise history. Oh, my God. The Seattle Kraken took the ice on Sunday. We did not mention this last week on the pod because it was inconceivable to me that they would start training camp on Thursday and play a game on Sunday. But that's how it works in hockey, apparently. Wow. It's like their fucking Lucas baseball team. Also, apparently, they just, like, play a game in the preseason, and then they have a shootout, even though it wasn't tied. Okay, this is incredible. So they just every pre do they do this every preseason game? I don't know. I didn't watch tonight's one, so they I, just, I can't speak to it. That's, you don't know if there was it's a practice. one of one of preseason games that I've ever watched of the <laughs> NHL in my life. 
<laughs> for me, it would be one of one of NHL games that I've watched. No. Uh, it's like when you play like boys and girls club basketball and everybody shoots a free throw at halftime at halftime everybody shoots a free throw but not, that's what they're doing not everybody got to take a penalty shot it did follow the traditional penalty sh- shootout rules that's good which apparently which i've just learned <laughs> because i've never <laughs> seen that before either which apparently you get three shooters and then after that it's sudden death okay uh they went through the first three shooters for each team. No goals. Uh-huh. Uh, the Kraken did not score. This in is their like five me, attempts. me and Luca playing NHL 19 when I don't know the fucking controls. And then Vancouver finally snuck one in under the keep uh, the keeper the goaltender's glove. Oh yeah, to uh, to get difference. the victory. No, I, I really love it because it goes to show just how horseshit preseason games are. <laughs> well, and they're just like all we're like really we're practicing here. We're pretending it's a real game, and I I really appreciate that more leagues are going towards that. Of just being like, we can do whatever we want here because it actually doesn't matter. Like the when the NBA had some of the preseason games that were forty minutes, I think, or maybe forty four instead of forty eight. That was a great time. Yeah, literally well, nobody were, cares. There were forty in the bubble. That's that's right. Preseason was forty in the bubble. The first two preseason games. Were literally here. nobody cares, and nobody will talk about this after. People really cared about preseason in the bubble. We hadn't seen basketball. In a, we, most pro sports we hadn't seen in a long time. Uh, so they got a five three win in that first game. In Spokane against the Canucks, against the hated rival Nucks, uh, Riley Sheehan with the first goal scored by the Kraken two minutes and 32 seconds into the second period after the, uh, oh, I've got Whitecaps in here. It's definitely not the Whitecaps. After the Canucks <laughs> took an early 2 nothing lead. We're figuring it out. Then Morgan Geeky scored twice to lead Seattle to the win over an inexperienced Canucks lineup in the preseason opener. Uh, things went less well Tuesday at Edmonton where the Kraken got beat 6 nothing. So, I didn't see that game, but it sounds not great. So, the preseason continues. Uh, Wednesday, they'll be at Calgary. Friday and Saturday, they return home in Kent and Everett to play those two teams. How many games do they play? A total of six. And then they'll wrap up the preseason next Tuesday at Vancouver. So, they've got a while before the season starts. They play the preseason games early, and then they have a chunk of time. Yes. Or the I mean, October twenty third date is just the home opener. Correct. The season. Okay, so the, the season, season opens October twelfth. Okay. Which that crack in Golden Knights game naturally will be part of ESPN's return to NFL NHL coverage with a doubleheader on the opening night of the season. All right, October twelfth. I'm ready. Yeah, circle it. Dang. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, I mean they they start the season very late because. It's it's down to the wire to get Climate Pledge Arena ready for Coldplay in the Kraken opener. <laughs> With that, it's time for your favorite segment. Don't burn yourself. We got Mariners hot takes coming at you. Well, as we enter this last weekend of our long, drawn-out baseball journey, we're finally approaching my absolute favorite game of Every single baseball season. Do you know what game that is? That's right. Game 163. When both the run differential and the fun differential go out the door. And I cannot wait for this year's 163rd game. I can just visualize it. 94 World Series style. It's Monday, October 4th. I've just finished the Peltoncast's first ever baseball emergency pod, and Safeco is a buzz as the Mariners take on the Red Sox. 
I'm calling in sick from my work from home job and I can't help but notice the similarities. I, I just thought of this, the similarities <laughs> between this year's Mariners team and the team it most reminds me of. Who do you think that is? Well, I'm going to go out and let me guess it was 1995. That's right, the 1995 Mariners. And much like 26 years ago, I can see it. Bottom of the seventh in a tie game, bases loaded. Luis is at the plate. <laughs> That's not Soho. That's Torrens, baby. Liner down the first baseline. Hanniger's rounding home. Toro's rounding home. Kellenic is rounding home. And what's this? The ball is stuck under a wall, and Torrens is rounding third. It's an inside-the-park grand salami, and the Mariners will again go on to face the Yankees in the playoffs. 163rd game. It's the best game of the year, baby. <laughs> well, that was something. Wait, they couldn't face the Yankees in the playoffs if they were facing the Red Sox in the in one. the one game play-in. Yeah, but the three of those teams are competing for the two wild cards. No, oh. the the play-in game, you win oh, that game I to see. play yes. the Yankees. Right. Oh, Do you yes. not know how baseball works? You play 163rd game and then you play the Yankees after that, if I recall correctly. <laughs> okay, go. Okay, I, I I follow you now. Yes. Uh, I you know it didn't happen in the season of record, so I understand <laughs> why you were confused. <laughs> You know, in the season of record, the season ends, and I think no wild cards make the playoffs. No, no. There's only the two division winners. <laughs> depending on what, what settings you choose, if you want to include the new settings. <laughs> the White Sox are in the AL West. Wait, the White... Yeah, there's like 16 teams in the AL West. <laughs> the Twins. <laughs> oh, when I think of my favorite West Coast teams, the White Sox and Twins are high on the, high the list. The Brewers, were they in the West? No, I think they were in the East. Uh, before they moved to the West and then before they moved to the NL. They never moved to the West. Well, the, the weren't the Brewers in the AL West before they moved to the NL? No, they were in the Central. Because we only had four of? teams in the AL West. Am I thinking of football? <laughs> I can't speak of what you're thinking Who of Who moved right from now? the NFC West to the AFC? Nobody? What am I talking about? I swear the <laughs> Brewers were in the ALS. No. There were six teams in the AL Central and four teams in the AL West. The Astros moved into the AL West. That's correct. But they moved from the NL. Oh, I have to plug in the Super Nintendo to figure this out. <laughs> well, you keep uh, maybe a beautiful mind or, or a uh, always sunny in Philadelphia style uh, graph to explain this uh, a poster board. So the Mariners... The Brewers moved from the AL to the NL. That's correct. Okay. But they were in the AL Central. <clears throat> well, they did. They were in the AL West when they were the Pilots. <laughs> Probably true. <laughs> I don't think there was a West yet. No, I think don't even just think about division. it. American League West Division 1969 and 1971. Thank okay. you. Okay. Clearly accurate. <laughs> That's obviously what I was thinking of. <laughs> That's your season of record. I was going to say, by the way, actually, my season of record is a little big league. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah. Your season of record didn't even happen. <laughs> <laughs> Look, they've got the video. Mm. Griffey Robin, the, the home run. Uh, the Mariners now a half game back of the Boston Red Sox wow. for that second wild card. They both have 88 wins. The Red Sox have played one fewer game, have 69 losses to the Mariners, 70. Mariners now a half game ahead of the Toronto Blue Jays in the standings. And... The Oakland A's, 
just almost entirely out of the picture now. Three games back of the Mariners. Oh, they're, after they're eliminated. The stretch. At this point. They're they're fan, fan graphs. Oh, the, this is not even most updated. Fangraphs now up to a fourteen point five percent chance of the Mariners making the playoffs. Wow. of the time, it happens every time. There are going to need to be some apologies coming from you and from Fangraphs about this season. That has to be the highest it's been all year. I would imagine so. Wow! I can graph it, I'm pretty sure, somewhere here. That's why it's called Fangraphs. 14%? That's astronomical for the Mariners and Fangraphs. It's all of a sudden, basically, we've reached the point of the season when Fangraphs doesn't really care about your run differential anymore. Yes. I think that's accurate. Wow! (laughs) Also, they know what's up. What's the run differential since September started? I don't know, but it definitely has Ignore that 14-1 loss on Saturday. (laughs) It's definitely down to, or, or up. I don't know which which direction it's going, but uh, the the good direction it's going. All right, we can graph their uh, their playoff odds over the course of the year. They were zero. Like the Mariners were fifteen games over to five hundred, and Fangraph still had them as a negative playoff odds. It appears their previous high before this was nine point five percent on September tenth. So even it is compared to earlier this week, this is high, the highest they've ever been. Wow. I mean, they're a half game out of the playoffs. That's, it's all true. And man, the A's, the A's look like the 2002 Mariners, I got to say. This is the reverse money ball. <laughs> I, do, I don't know this reference. I'm not familiar with the 2002 Mariners. Tell me. But if you, haven't you watched Moneyball lately when it was on Netflix at the front of the top of the page when oh, no. all of us watched it? Yeah, maybe I'll queue that up on the flight tomorrow. Uh, it. Moneyball is actually the story of how the Mariners blew a lead in the 2002 AL West. Wow. <laughs> okay. I, you lost me at not 1993. <laughs> I know. It's much too recent for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's also a season of record, I think. <laughs> Anytime there was a movie. No, no. no. There's all, there can only be one season of record. <laughs> and it was 1993. <laughs> Like, when you said the words Philadelphia, I could just see the pinstripe jerseys that weren't even, like, on their bodies, that sometimes <laughs> the pinstripes came off their bodies. But I could I could imagine Mitch the Wild Thing Williams oh, in that World Series. What an iconic team. I was, like, such a Phillies fan in 93. I, I said Mickey, Mickey Tettleton, and what I meant to say was Darren Dalton. I apologize. <laughs> the Felton cast regrets the air. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Well... <clears throat> Seattle Sounders a big week last week. I'm so I'm gonna be so I'm gonna be in LA. And Why do you wait until I introduce the next topic to bring up these points? Like I was consciously pausing. <clears throat> what I was doing? This is just expert level podcasting. Oh, Thank you. I'm gonna be in we'll LA. See what the fabulous Pelton quotes every, has to say about that. Every single day for the remaining days of the baseball season, which there are not that many of. Right, it ends on Sunday. That's correct. Except right, for game one sixty three. I'm going to basically get home, see the Mariners clinch going to a one-game playoff. We're going to do an emergency pod that night, right? Uh Uh-huh. Then game 163 is on. Do you remember what happened the last time the Mariners played game 163? I went to Valley View Elementary School. Well, I mean, yes. It was the day of the O.J. Simpson verdict. And I sat in the pit. (laughs) (laughs) And the O.J. Simpson verdict happened, 
I, I think I recorded the game on VHS, but we all knew what happened. You recorded it? Huh. I'm I, I guess sure. I got home because I got home earlier because I was at Chinook by that point. Ugh, Chinook Middle so I, I was able to watch the end of it live for sure. I think I watched the very, very end, but the Mariners were up by so much that it was like it was over at that point. I kind of forgot that you didn't go to that game. I kind of felt like mom would have taken you out of school to go to that game, but I guess not. No. Bad parent, if we're being honest. <laughs> game five of the AL Division Series against the Yankees. Are you going to take Luca? <laughs> Unless they get this vaccine. Yeah, it's true. It's a very different situation. <laughs> yeah. Jan was not having to be concerned with a global pandemic at the time. Uh, but yeah, no, Jan took us to game five against the yeah, games. Three, three and five. Three and five against yeah. the Yankees, but somehow still a bad parent. <laughs> <laughs> I had to go to school for a day. What a tough life. Mm -hmm. So the Seattle Sounders sadly did not get to drink from the league's cup. As on Wednesday, they lost 3-2 to Leon. A thrilling match. They took a 1-0 lead after halftime via Christian Roldan and seemed to be in control of the game at that point before a triple substitution by Leon changed the run of play. They dominated from then on, outscoring the equalizer in the 61st minute before going ahead on a penalty in the 81st, both converted by Angel Mena at an insurance goal in the 85th minute, which proved crucial because Nicola Benize, who you just learned, plays for the Sounders. Yeah, that was pretty thrilling. Yeah, scored a deflected goal in stoppage time to produce the 3-2 final score. Sounders still acquitted themselves, I think, pretty well going up against one of the top teams from Liga MX. Going, leaning further into this possession <laughs> pronunciation. It just sounds so ridiculous. After beating two teams from Mexico <laughs> to get to the final. Uh, but they bounced back really quickly. You saying that sounds like the NHL's tweet about <laughs> look at those whites. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, bounced back quickly on Sunday at Sporting Kansas City, uh, beating the Sporting KC 2-1 with Roldan again opening the scoring and Will Bruin converting against a keeper out of position for a two-goal lead in the 55th minute. They saw out the match with a one-goal lead after Sporting Kansas City scored in the 60th minute. The win moved the Sounders atop of the Western Conference, Hello. two points ahead of Kansas Mariner City. Mariner style. With, <laughs> I mean, their, their run differential is much better. Uh, with a match in hand, also three points ahead of Colorado, who has played the same number of matches. And that's meaningful because those two teams are going to play on Sunday at Lumen Field. Uh, before that... The Sounders play Wednesday in San Jose, so expect quite a bit of squad rotation for that one as they prepare for that bigger matchup. These, you know, deal with these three matches in eight days, two of them against the other top two teams in the Western Conference. San Jose in 10th place, but the Earthquakes have been a bit of a thorn in the Sounders' side historically, including beating them 1-0 in Seattle on July 31st. Ugh. Sounders drew their only matchup at Colorado so far on the 4th of July with two... Head-to-head uh, -head matches left in both Seattle and in Denver uh, in October that figured it loom large in terms of playoff seating in the Western Conference. My brother was born on the fourth of July. Also, a good day Sunday. You should uh, you should hit up Chris if you're interested in going to the game on Sunday. Okay. Uh, by the way, we we didn't talk about the Seattle Sports Day on Sunday. Oh, the the Equinox. Yes. Which got redeemed. It, it was off to a really rough start with the Storm getting eliminated from the playoffs and the Seahawks losing to the Vikings. But the soccer went great. The Kraken won. It was a redeemed day. That was, I think that's the beauty of having this they many teams. They lost the shootout, though. That's true. <laughs> this is the beauty of having so many teams eventually 
Some of them are going to win. There we go. Uh, O.L. Rain, also a dominant performance on Sunday, beating the Orlando Pride 3-0, all three goals coming in the first half. Bethany Balser opened the scoring in the third minute to take the league lead by herself with nine goals, followed by a pair for Eugene Lesome, both set up by Jennifer Marochan within a four-minute span. Uh, Rain with that win now just three points back of the Portland Thorns ahead of their final media of the regular season this Saturday in Portland, albeit the Thorns have a match in hand. Pretty much a must win here if the Rain want to claim the top seed in the NWSL playoffs, having gone 2-0 and against the Thorns thus far this season. They're the Thorns in the Thorns side. <laughs> I look, I had to call that back. You, you didn't. Oh, I did. As I mentioned a second ago, the Seattle Storm season came to an end Sunday with an 85-80 loss to the Phoenix Mercury in the one-and-done second round of the WNBA playoffs. Brianna Stewart was unable to play due to her foot injury, I guess actually a leg injury is what she said in her postseason press conference on Monday, and also said even though she was listed as questionable for the game initially, there was actually never any chance of her playing, that her hope was to potentially be able to get back for Game 3 or Game 4 had the Storm gotten to the semifinals, the best of five semifinals matchup. Wow, that's injuryless manipulation. Yeah, so she she wasn't <clears throat> wasn't actually very close to, to playing after suffering that Reported. injury late in the regular season. Without Stewie, the Storm fell behind by 12 points midway through the second quarter before finishing the first half with a 15-0 run to take the lead. A back-and-forth final period saw Subert tie the game with a three-pointer at the one-minute mark. Neither t- team scored the rest of the way as Skylar Diggins-Smith missed two free throws. Storm missed twice at the other end before Mercedes Russell blocked Diggins-Smith at the buzzer to force overtime. Shouts to Mercedes Russell who played all 45 minutes of this one. Uh, for the Storm. Storm went over two minutes scoreless in overtime as Phoenix slowly pulled away for the victory uh, despite 18 points and four threes from Katie Lou Samuelson, 16 points and five assists from Sue Bird, and a double-double from Russell. It was a tough day for Jewel Lloyd, who, with all the defensive attention on her and Stewie's absence, shot 5 of 24 and missed all seven of her three-point attempts nine days after scoring a career-high 37 points versus the Mercury. But the real story of this one was, I think, in the closing stages and then post-game. Sue Bird and Diana Taurasi, both nearing the end of their careers, matching up in this one against each other, the longtime teammates, longtime rivals in the WNBA, five gold medals together for USA Women's Basketball, uh, a pair of national championships playing together, or I guess just one national championship playing together at UConn. Uh, Sue won a second one, and Tarasi won two others. And uh, is, is they did their post-game press conference with Holly Rowe. The crowd at Angel of the Winds Arena begins to chant one more year to Sue, who got emotional and uh, then swapped jerseys with Diana Tarasi afterwards as they took some photos. And Sue really sounded a different tone in the wake of this game about retirement than we've ever heard before, where in the past her message was consistently like look everyone wants to talk about my age but as long as i'm playing at a high level i want to keep doing this as long as i'm healthy and playing at a high level and she still is like she had an outstanding season was probably the best storm player on the court on sunday but uh she said afterwards 
Uh, I've been really trying to push away those thoughts. The minute I even let myself think about it, it makes me want to cry. This is the first off-season where I feel like I need to weigh it. Usually I'm like, nope, one more year. If I feel good, I'll be there. This is the first time where I'm really going to have to sit back, see how I feel, weigh some things. I know for sure that I want to let the emotion of the season die down. I don't want to make some emotional decision. So at the uh, at the end of the season press conference on Monday, one of the things I asked Sue was, you know, how important would it be to play in Climate Pledge Arena and, you know, how, end her career there yes. in the same location, essentially, even though it's not technically the same arena, uh, Key Arena, where she played the bulk of her career and, and won three of the, the four championships that she's won with the Storm, the other one coming in the bubble. And she said, yeah, that definitely would be meaningful and talked about how much she missed playing in downtown Seattle and the five-minute commute from her, her spot in Queen Anne. <laughs> really just roasting Everett. <laughs> I mean, all the players were, like, very nice about, like, you know, Everett did a great job, but it's not Seattle. Like, Stewie also had talked about that. She's a free agent, but uh, made it very clear with her comments about Climate Pledge Arena that she's going to be there for the Storm next season. Would she... She wouldn't even be, like able to sign elsewhere we'll, we'll talk about that in a second let's okay. let's t- finish up with sue uh i i mean it, i'm certainly nervous about this as someone who wasn't there on sunday because of the fact that i was on the east coast like it would be hugely disappointing to not be at sue bird's last game after covering so much of her career and being at her first game so i'm it's th- I, i'm sorry but this is not going to happen like you mentioned all of these reasons of Sue still playing at a high level is kind of the main one. Like, I think the thing that you want to avoid when you're a professional athlete is embarrassment, basically, right? If you're somebody who's been performing at an extraordinarily high level your entire life and who's been one of the best players in in your sport, again, your entire life, you don't want to be bad, right? Yeah. But that's not the case with Sue Bird. And Sue Bird, it would take... It would take injury to make that be the case until she's pretty old. <laughs> so, so it's not injury. What's going to make that the case? But at this point, like the athleticism, there's no massive difference or something right. between this year and next year. So it does feel like she would be able to perform at a high level still. Brianna Stewart's going to be coming back healthy. They're going to be opening up a new arena. Like there's, but it's, one, but it's one talk- of she talked about was the mental toll of preparing for a season at this point in her career and how difficult that has become. I mean, that's, again, not something she's really talked about in the same way ever before. So I I put a lot of stock in what she's saying. I mean, I would say at this point, if I had to give a guess, I would say 60-40 retirement. You think more likely retirement than not? I do. Wrong. Totally wrong. <laughs> well, I hope, I hope in this case you are right. I've never hoped you were right about Sue Bird when we disagreed or, before. Or anything? <laughs> no, totally wrong. I really hope so. Sue's not retiring. I just you you can tell. So she's one of three Storm starters who are unrestricted free agents. So are fellow All Stars Jewel Lloyd and Brianna Stewart. Uh, it didn't make sense for either of them to sign an extension this year because they neither of them could make as much on an extension as they can by re-signing in free agency. Uh, Stewart, you know, uh, again made it very clear that she plans to be back. I you know I asked her directly about that, her plans, and you know. Did anybody else Seattle. get to ask questions during this? Yeah, there was lots of other questions. I'm, I'm just only talking about my questions. <laughs> Seattle. You home. only you asked the only important questions. <laughs> no, I mean there were there were other important questions certainly. Uh, 
Seattle is home. You know, it's it's where I've the only place I've played. You know, what Joel, would be what would be the difference between playing signing? Is there a, similar to the NBA? Like, is there an incentive to sign resigning in Seattle? Uh, she would have to get signed and traded to make the same amount somewhere else, but she can do that. I mean, that's what happened with Natasha Howard when she got traded to the Liberty because it was a sign and trade. She still is making the maximum possible. But that was a storm choice, right? I I think that Natasha Howard was interested in the trade. Okay. So, look, Stewie's going to be back. The question is, if you don't, if you know for sure she's not going to be back, that frees up the court designation to potentially use that on Joel Lloyd, who is not nearly as is resolute or firm in say in discussing her future mentioned she's never been a free agent before she signed an extension coming off of her rookie contract instead of hitting free agency and uh you know talked a lot about just wanting to take some time and think about things didn't have the same kind of emotion about seattle so that was that was interesting to note certainly but again the storm could potentially use the core designation on lloyd if they don't on bird uh some other key free agents are restricted free agents Mercedes Russell and then backup point guard Jordan Canada and then also Stephanie Talbot who played a key role off the bench this season all of them restricted free agents so the Storm can match any offers to them but uh, all of them would probably make more than they did this season when they were making the minimum with Russell and Canada or Russell was technically not a rookie contract but uh, Canada her rookie contract is a first round pick and then and then Talbot is a player who could only negotiate with the storm last year and, and had to make the roster out of training camp and then uh, Carly Samuelson is a reserved player who can negotiate only with the storm and then Sierra Burdick who also didn't play very much off the bench is an unrestricted free agent so a lot of free agents for the storm to work through they'll have the ninth pick in the WNBA draft and uh, obviously the next time they play it'll be at Climate Pledge Arena and that's that's very exciting. So I would expect I they certainly I certainly would not expect all these free agents to be to be back. Canada is an interesting one because, you know, two years ago she played so well as a starter in Subert's absence when she had that knee injury and it looked like okay this is the Storm's point guard of the future you've got that position locked up. I, I mean I remember debating with Percy Allen whether Jordan Canada was going to start ahead of Subert in 2020 when Sue came back which uh, was not ever a question. And frankly, the Storm don't seem any closer now to having that point guard of the future solved than they have at any point in Sue Bird's tenure, which is kind of remarkable given her longevity. So that'll be an interesting one to say. She'll be there next year. Not not a concern. (laughs) I mean, it's still a concern. She's not going to be around forever either way. All right, let's talk about Husky football, which got a 31-24 overtime win Saturday against California. Uh, well after 1 a.m. on the East Coast, which is still earlier than it was for was me the last time UW played Cal. I mean, that game ended at 2. Oh, my God. Yeah, <laughs> this one ended early by comparison's sake. Even on the East Coast. I mean, saying. I flipped over. I think the Oregon-Arizona game was in the third quarter when I flipped yeah, over. Yeah, right. Pac-12 after dark, they're getting serious about this. I mean, they've never not been serious about huh? it. I think they're leaning into it a little bit more. Like from a branding standpoint? Or a number of games <laughs> standpoint? timing standpoint. No. Uh, <laughs> Again, they've always been serious about that part of it. You seem very fascinated by the national anthem here as we're getting the... Uh, I saw an American flag. And the Kraken. Playing at Rogers Arena in Edmonton. Kraken Oilers replay. Uh, Huskies gain, outgained 457 to 326 in that game, but... 
able to win thanks to forcing three turnovers, two Kyler Gordon interceptions, and then the fumble recovery at the goal line that finished this game off in overtime. Huskies committed just one turnover themselves on a Kamari Pleasant fumble. Passing attack, decent, but Huskies again struggled to run the ball, getting just 3.4 yards per carry from running backs, with Sean McGrew leading the committee in the absence of Richard Newton, who was available only in an emergency due to injury. Okay. Which, did yeah, we that's know? What, okay. No, they just learned that post-game. Oh, the Huskies also played without Cade Otten, who's in the health and safety protocols, and cornerback Trent McDuffie, who remains week-to-week after the ankle sprain he suffered returning a punt against Arkansas State. Wait, Trey McDuffie? Yes. Injured himself? We suffered an injury, yes. The, not, obviously, the most important player in the defense. Yeah. Got injured. All returning punts. Returning a punt. It was interesting because you... Wait, no, 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 no. Okay. Against Arkansas State. Yeah. It was interesting because Jimmy Lake was asked about this on Monday, about playing his best players on special teams, and he said, we'll always do that. And that's fascinating to me. Because it's odd to have that mentality and still be so awful at special teams. Like, the Huskies are inexplicable. They're all Put Dylan Morris out there. in special teams. Like, everyone complains As about long that. as you're our best player, you're going to be on special teams, no matter what the position is. I mean, he might be an upgrade. Look, as much as everyone wants to complain about the offense, and for good reason, obviously, offense is more important to winning than special teams. They are way worse at special teams than they are at offense. Oh, yeah. The silver line is they're oh. bad at something else. That's what it always is for the Huskies this year. Uh just trying to process that. I mean, look, they're undefeated in Pac-12 play. Just the words injured, returning a punt against Arkansas State are really hard to process. Just like, Were you, you could, unaware of this previously? I don't think I really grasped that. Okay. Uh, beat Cal. They did something that Chris Peterson had a hard time doing. <laughs> yes. Which... I do think in the Pac-12, there is sort of a historical uh, uh, like reference when you play these teams, right? The amount that you play a certain team. The hundredth time that they played Cal. But there, there is a certain element to, I think Chris Peterson had a particular tough, particularly tough time with Cal, especially under Justin Wilcox. Like for whatever reason yeah, that was. Yeah, I predated just, I don't think it was a real issue against Sonny Dykes. But, I don't think anybody had a tough time beating Cal at that point. And maybe it's because of Justin Wilcox or whatever. Like, they had a very difficult time during that time period. I'm not going to say that they played amazing in this game, but they did some things right, and some players who flashed continue to flash. Like, Kyler Gordon is... Oh. You look at both of these players, both of these corners. God, I wish we were having this conversation about the Seahawks. Uh, but you look at both of these corners... You didn't suggest the trade for this, with the Seahawks. What? You did suggest the trade with the Seahawks, right? One for one. Yeah. yeah. The, the, I would actually, actually, just for the record, <laughs> seeing the success of rookies in the NFL this year, uh, the idea that rookies are prepared to play in the NFL is laughable to me. But the. Well, maybe the Seahawks actually had that one right about the, after the pandemic, they could, nobody could scout rookies. We knew that Kyler was going to grow into a game-changing defensive player at cornerback. And 
I think seeing seeing him really grow into that this week and making such big plays was awesome. Like it was the interceptions, but also that fourth down tackle that he made. Like Kyler Gordon had a phenomenal game, which obviously we all know, right? Like, but I think he really was kind of the difference between winning and losing in this one. And it's not a position that you usually see that. Let's be clear. That's former Seattle Storm Dean's trooper. Kyler Gordon. I fucking love Kyler Gordon. I mean, I was thinking, I was watching him play and was just like, he's literally, he is making money right now while he's playing. Yeah. Uh, He is improving his draft stock. Like Kyler Gordon, he will be drafted. And I think it is a very good chance that he's drafted before Saturday in the NFL draft. And they're going to point to this game because of that, which was awesome to see. And it was so exciting to see that play, even without Trent McDuffie on the other side. Right. And really, like, Cal gained a lot of yards. They were mostly down in this game. And a lot of those yards came from pretty garbage Chase Garbers runs. Like, it, it just, it, it is, it's an offense. I get it. But, like, it's kind of a junk offense that, that Cal has with that type of play. Like, do it. Do your thing. Gain those yards. But I'm just, I don't know. It didn't know. make you concerned about the UW defense. Exactly. There are not going to be that many quarterbacks who can do I guess what Chase Garbers can do. Didn't really know that we were dealing with like, uh, I, and Chase Garbers has been a, an athletic quarterback, but like it, it was also like designed runs for Chase Garbers that they had a really hard time with. I guess that's concerning long-term, but it wasn't something where you're like every quarterback in the Pac-12 can can give them the Garbers, you know? <laughs> oh man, you do not want to give them the Garbers. Uh, you know who might be able to give them the Garbers? We're just moving on from... I don't know. Do you have, do you have other stuff on it? And I think also they, they were... The offense... I mean, you watched most of this game, right? Yes, I streamed pretty much the entire game. I think I was a little bit more sporadic than you, but... I, I mean, I also was distracted because it was at a wedding and then at a reception <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> but I wasn't not going to stream the game. <laughs> You're high-fiving Nate. Because <laughs> I was at a wedding. That's fucking commitment. I, I have to say... I, this is an intervention. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. You actually streamed a Husky football game while you were at the wedding? I mean, it was very, the late stages of the reception where it kicked off. Flying to Michigan is one thing. <laughs> I get it. That's a unique experience. But you were. I also didn't know how the season was going to go at that point when I came to that At a trip. celebrity wedding. <laughs> <laughs> and you stream oh, the paparazzi outside the Washington Huskies football team at that wedding. You're damned right I did. I think you have a problem, sir. Not the first wedding I've streamed a Husky football game at, for the record. The, but but this team and this wedding. <laughs> anyway, Jake, Jake Browning's first start at Boise State to- streamed it at a wedding. Toast to to Danny Larue. Oh. Yeah, congrats. Congrats. Congrats on your nuptials that Kevin Pelton couldn't pay attention to because he had to watch the Washington Huskies football team that literally could not beat Montana play against Cal. I don't know which part I was supposed to pay attention to at 9.30 at night. <laughs> the toast I, or whatever. I paid attention, anyway, I paid I, attention to that Sunday bar. I, I think <laughs> you're in line. You've got your phone up Sunday. And you just... I think that was technically before it started. They're not going to be a good running team, I think, 
for the season. They just can't run block. It, and running backs may matter in college football, but they certainly are still not as important as run blocking. I mean, I like that Sean McGrew is getting in the mix. Sean McGrew is a very aggressive running back. I, I don't see a huge difference between McGrew and Kamari Pleasant and probably Richard Newton. Like, I think Richard Newton is probably in a worse situation with his running than Sean McGrew has been. But they just shouldn't be running the ball. Like, that's the reality, is they're going to be extraordinarily bad at running in the ball. And I do think that there was this offense was it was a little bit more dynamic than we saw at the beginning of the season. I would agree, yeah. So, again, I gave, I gave the snippet of, of credit to the Husky coaching staff, and I will continue after this win to give them a snippet of credit. Oh, well, yeah. harder in the snippet? Yeah, it's a snippet more. We have not gotten to the point of... It, they were also playing without the best offensive player in KDOT. Yeah, I mean, they, they played this game without their best offensive player and their best defensive player. Probably. Well, you don't think you... Who no, McDuffie probably. Trim? McDuffie. Kyler? Uh, yeah, let's not. Let's all remain calm. Who's the backup tight end? Colt, Devin Culp. Yeah. Uh, he seems great. Get a nice game. Like I, I think Devin Culp is a probably a good player. He'll still be in the mix with when K. Dotton returns. So he played a lot the first few weeks. Jay and calling you. Still the alarm. Uh, an alarm for what? You have to turn on a Husky football game <laughs> at a wedding. <laughs> yes, that's it. <laughs> Let's talk about the Beavers, who are favored against the Huskies for the first time. I'm kind of shocked that they're favored since 2013. I saw you? this. FP- I, don't, I guess I don't know. I'm not following the Beavs that closely, but seeing an FPI win percentage of 44% against the Beavers is pretty shocking. Well, you're going to check out some stats from FPI in a second here. Uh, the Huskies have won the last nine head-to-head meetings versus Oregon State, but these are not your older brothers' boobs. It's very, even very slightly older brothers' boobs. After losing their opener thirty to twenty-one at Purdue, Oregon that State has won three like in a row. Older brothers' boobs, including a forty-five to twenty-seven win last Saturday at USC, their first win in the Coliseum since nineteen sixty. So they used to roast Pete Carroll, right? <laughs> they like they fucking gave Pete Carroll the Sean McVay business, but only. Only at Research Stadium. Only at home. Only in Corvallis. Okay. It snapped a 24-game losing streak at USC. Wow. I mean, the th- kind of things that exist in college football are amazing. Uh, Oregon State is number 11 in FBI efficiency. Wow. Tops among the Pac-12 teams. They are fifth in the nation in FBS in offense. 64th in defense. 77th on special teams. Second-year starting quarterback Chance Nolan has taken a huge step forward. He's completing 72% of his passes for 10.2 yards per attempt, ranking 8th in the FBS, and has also averaged 7.2 yards per carry, and thus is second to Texas's Casey Thompson in QBR. The number one and number two quarterbacks in QBR, both former Husky play callers, calling the plays for those two quarterbacks. Think about that. And Jonathan Smith John Donovan. did nothing wrong. We knew. We knew about Jonathan Smith. Though. I mean, he got a job pretty early we on. We knew about Jonathan Smith. He, but he got a but job a lot of early. other people. He, he got a job the year after they went to the playoff? That, it was, that's when he got hired? Or? It was actually, he got this job in 2018. So it was the year after they went, they played Penn State. Okay. A lot of other people thought that Jonathan Smith was a bad offensive coordinator. And it just, like at some point, you, you got to set your bar a lot lower than whatever bar it is you're setting. <laughs> Sometimes I watch college football and I'm like, wow, my bar for just watching football should be a lot lower. But, I mean, Sark, you know, maybe Sark set the bar pretty high because 
He's got him in offense at Texas. After are they good? Who did they lose? Didn't they get they? They had an embarrassing loss, but last week they hung forty-two on Texas. I want to say Texas Tech in the first half. Oh damn! Yeah. <laughs> so that was that was a pretty impressive performance. We're back to a Sark appreciation pod. Oh, we have never not been a Sark appreciation <laughs> pod. Uh, here's the other bad news for the Huskies. Oh, that gosh. running back B.J. Baylor is averaging 6.9 yards per carry with seven touchdowns thus far. Leads the Pac-12 with 422 yards. Seems like a problem for a team that has a poor run defense. Oregon State can pass the ball deep. They have a large uh, high yards per attempt and a high yards per carry. Yeah, they're just very good at offense. What is going on in Corvallis? <laughs> Jonathan Smith, it's in the water. It's, it's as if he's throwing to Ocho Cinco and TJ Hushman's Wow. Bringing back memories of that. Uh, Who was the running back again? Ken, Ken Simonton. Ken Simonton. Their yeah. rushing attack leads the Pac-12 in both yards and yards That's per carry. That's the season of record for Oregon State. Oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> uh, a balanced receipt. It's 2000, not 99, right? The, whatever the year that was that they crushed Notre Dame. Yeah, that's 2000. Balanced receiving attack with five players over 100 receiving yards. The defense has also improved dramatically from last season when the Beavers finished 108th in FBI efficiency and is easily the best in Smith's four years as head coach. Wow. Okay. So this is... Uh... This is a real-ass game. Oregon State could... Like, they might be the second-best team in the Pac-12. After Oregon? Yes. The state of Oregon is controlling football and... In the Pac-12. That's how it seems to be going thus far. I mean, I guess wow. Arizona State's probably still in that mix. They haven't suffered any embarrassing losses, have they? Uh, well, I know that there's nobody else undefeated aside from Oregon. Hmm. So Maybe they'd suffer an embarrassing loss. They've lost. I don't I don't know if it was embarrassing, per se. I mean, there's only one kind of loss the Pac-12 does. <laughs> so. the This is really fascinating, though. I mean, it, it kind of sounds like, similarly to... The game against Cal, where Cal was lopsided, very good offense, not as good of a defense. But they weren't this good offense. It really is. Oh, UCLA is still good. That's right. UCLA is good. Oh, I thought you were looking up who Arizona State lost to. Oregon State, weirdly, not not that good in terms of the actual FPI, I guess. They're, they're only 48th overall, uh, because, of course, that still includes your preseason expectation. The Huskies are actually better and Oregon State's advantage uh, in FBI, where they're projected to win 56% of the time, entirely because of home fuel. Oh, advantage. yeah, it's that big Corvallis home crowd. <laughs> <laughs> but, but again, in another game where we're looking at this, where it's going to be a test of the Husky defense. Trent McDuffie, we have no idea on status. Week to week. Arizona week to State week. lost at BYU, so that's not an embarrassing loss. Uh, and we have no idea on anything with regards to any player in all of college football. It, the indication was that Kate Otten will miss this week's game as well. Oh, no. That got an overturned microphone. Oh, dear. No, uh, no. I, I, actually, I think they, they are probably more more capable of withstanding uh, Kate Otten COVID protocols than they are. He, he has COVID. That, That's that the seems to be the indication, yes. Okay. Uh, than they are at cornerback, right? I mean, they're starting Michelle... Uh, Powell. Michelle Powell. I mean, Bookie Radley Hiles. Oh. Looks he, incredible. But also got banged up on Saturday. Should, should be able to play. But is also go, he's going to play inside, right? I think yeah, that that's where he plays. A college team is a little bit less capable of taking advantage of having one corner banged up, but maybe an offensive genius. People are throwing that out there. <laughs> <laughs> like Jonathan Smith might actually be able to take advantage of this. 
but it's going to be the type of game where the the defense is going to get tested and you know i thought with the ball coming down the field in situations that w- were not chase garber's scrambling or designed runs i really thought the defense held up pretty well in that game on saturday you know it's a road game and it's different but like i think that this i'm going i'm going to i'm going to be so naive when i say this again i won't be paying any attention right I'm going to be in LA not thinking about Husky football. I'll check in occasionally. I'll read the... You're ang- not going to be streaming at, a, at Daniel LaRue's wedding. I'll read the angry chats. No, I will not be streaming this game. But... Uh, the downside of streaming is it makes it much harder to read the angry chats. I had to catch up on those back when I when I was back in my room and was oh, able to get this on the computer. you to catch up on the angry chats. Me and Reese, if the Huskies win, we'll toast. We'll drink a shot. But I, I still, I've still taken this Husky defense over anybody right now. It feels weird to be confident. It does. But I think that they've, again, I think they've figured it out the tiniest bit. I think they figured it out. And I think that the Husky defense is still better than this Oregon State offense. And I think their chances of winning are 58%. That is so much more optimistic than I am. I'm going to go like 40%. I'm buying what less, Jonathan Smith is selling. Less than FPI is yeah, saying. I'm buying what Jonathan Smith is selling right now. Like, this offense has generally been pretty good the past few years, and the defense has just been so atrocious that it hasn't mattered. So if the defense is even just mildly competent... I think this is the farthest off we've ever been in chances of victory. Uh, there's got to be something. Pretty huge I, swing. We need a, we need a spreadsheet Or not, this, like, really. angrily. Like, there's some nights yeah, where no, we're angrily off. That's a good point. This is, like, I feel pretty level-headed here. I don't know if you are level-headed. You just said the Huskies have a 58% chance of winning. Tell- they're going to win this fucking game. Okay, fine. Again, for the second time in this podcast. I hope I'm wrong, and I hope you are right. So the Seahawks... Oh, we're... we're, I, we're, I we're turning to the Seahawks? I, I mean, they're the, they're the only team left. I was We've hoping, talked about all the other teams. I was hoping we'd talk about Oregon State more. <laughs> <laughs> You're really trying to make me talk about the Seahawks more. Uh, so we did an emergency pod after the game. It was our, probably our most calm emergency pod we've ever done. It wasn't angry like the Utah Montana one. It wasn't certainly jubilant like many of our Seahawks emergency pods. I guarantee pods you it was not our most calm emergency pod we've ever done. I, okay, it was the most unexpectedly calm because I thought it was going to be angry, and then it really wasn't. It was, it was just, like when you get so angry that you're kind of, you like come out the other side. I mean, I think I was angrier after hearing Pete Carroll's comments on Monday and then just the discourse. Oh, I actually personally hate Pete Carroll. Oh, no. wow. <laughs> the one thing I didn't mention on that pod was like the, you know, our conversation after week one about like, this is the time you're excited about Pete Carroll, but by, you know, December, you're going to be upset because he hasn't punted. Oh, no. He's punted in a situation where he should have gone for it. It took two fucking weeks. Two weeks. 14 days. Pete Carroll is so good at every other aspect of coaching aside from the actual coaching of a football team. <laughs> and it's, it's really frustrating because you it is. like, I, I, we will look back on Pete and really love Pete Carroll as a coach. Like there, there's no doubt about that. And he's also, how old is he? I, I 70 years old. He is a 70 year old man. Like, there's just, you know, Brandon Staley's like 32 or something, right? Brandon Staley's younger than I am, right? It's very troubling. 
Is that right, though? He's, like, literally in his... The, the way that you're going to approach the sport is very different if you've had 30-plus years of experience with it. And I, I think that that gap might be catching up. But... No, Brandon Staley's my age. Oh, okay. Old, old as hell. He's, he's younger than I he's am. He's in his 30s, though, right? Like, Yes, he is still in his 30s. The... <laughs> saying something about yourself shockingly still in your 30s um the <laughs> people people think the other direction me too people are always like you're 19 right um the, well because the frosted tips <laughs> <laughs> they're like it's 2001 right <laughs> yeah <laughs> you're that band good charlotte um the the way that you approach football is going to be influenced by your entire experience being a part of football. And Pete Carroll's 70 years old. Like, there's only so much you can expect from him. And it's a really difficult thing. Because, again, we really love Pete Carroll. He has his team highly vaccinated. He has his team highly prepared for the idea of playing football and extraordinarily underprepared for playing the sport of football. Which is to say, there are teams around the league who have even learned the idea that you can have motion when it comes to defense. Pete Carroll's fucking baffled by this idea. It does not exist in his world. When it comes to Pete Carroll football, you line up how you're going to play, you telegraph exactly what it is, and you try to do it better than the other team. On really offense and defense... And the sport is changing. The sport is changing very rapidly. And defense, the new motion is motion on defense, right? Like seeing this to me, it's something I never thought about before. I don't know that I'm that convinced. Uh, is there been statistical research on the value of motion on defense? Because the, the only place, the places that you have an upper hand over another team are talent, of course, which the Seahawks are fucking terrible at, are... Talent and not knowing... Terrible at on defense. They have plenty of talent on offense. I, I have a question for you about this later on. But the not knowing what the other person is going to do, right? Like, this is, this is the sport that is most affected by not telegraphing what you're going to do, right? In basketball, you could tell somebody else what you're going to do. And for the most part, you could be successful if you have good players. This is one of the things I've always been curious about. It's like if you did a study, uh, like the, 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 I have an idea in mind, which is like you run a, a controlled experiment where half the time or some random amount of the time, the defense knows what play the offense is going to run. The other half, they don't. What's the difference in terms of points per possession? I think there's probably a difference. But in it's basketball. Like, it's like five points per possession. Yeah. I, I think it is a much bigger deal in football than it is in any other sport. Like, that is... You're literally running around the field <laughs> in different places, right? Like, it's a much bigger playing space than almost well, anything sport else. sounds really dumb when you put it that way. But that's what it is. Like, the, it's a much bigger playing space. Or maybe space great, because you're getting some exercise. Than, than you're just basketball. running around out there. And in basketball, like, small margins matter a lot in basketball, right? Because you're scoring a lot of points. and And in football... Scoring a touchdown versus not scoring a touchdown is a huge deal, right? Like, the amount of possessions gets 
weighed so low. Yeah, especially when your defense can't get off the field. So it's the type of thing that if you don't have the talent, I mean, we talked about this in the emergency podcast. If you don't have the talent and you're telling the other team what you're going to do, it honestly is not that hard to exploit. You know, and this is this is no offense to Clint Kubiak. I'm sure he's a very good offensive coordinator. I'm impressed by Clint Kubiak and all of the nepotism that went into him having this job, right? He will follow in the footsteps of every single successful white coach ever and become a head coach Look, eventually. Pete Carroll did not did not get any nepotism. Yeah. I'm sure he had other systemic benefits, but none of his relatives he's just coached. spreading that on the Nate Carroll. Yes, uh, no, the other direction for sure. Yes. But this is this is not to say that Clint Kubiak is not doing a good job, but seeing those receivers run wide open. And look, I think Kirk Cousins is an underrated quarterback, but when you have receivers that open, it's not necessarily that hard. I mean, the takeaway is that passing game coordinator Andre Curtis, who missed the game on Saturday, Sunday, must be incredible at his job. Why did he miss the game? Uh, it was vague what descriptions but he should be back this week i this but that is that doesn't matter like i'm sorry but the difference between andre curtis being there and on like we're getting we're getting so granular with these coaches that like this is shit we would all like in the early 2000s we'd be like the players in the 2010s, we'd be like the coaches and the coordinators. We're getting to the point that we're talking about the passing game coordinator being there. All I'm saying is that you look at the clips that Ben Baldwin posted of the Seahawks, like looking they, like they had never but, seen trips as a formation before. Do you think that I, Andre Curtis would be like, yo, run that way with that guy? Like, I'm sorry, but no. I mean, there's some minor adjustments based on tells and formations that, yes, I, I do or think. Or maybe, maybe we're underrating the, the, the fucking long tail of coaches. Like, the depth of coaches because the one time that the saints right the saints are two and one and the one game that they lost was the game that like half their coaches were out because of covid protocols and they got roasted maybe all these deep position coaches matter a lot more than we think right i'm down for it as a perspective but in reality i think what matters more is the overall game plan it's not the first time that the seahawks secondary has gotten roasted yeah it's just the worst that they've gotten roasted but I mean, then you look at it, and statistically, shockingly, the Seattle Seahawks still don't appear to be that bad of a team. Number two in offensive DVOA. I think number eight in overall DVOA after the uh Do you the want to complain about Pete Carroll and the gamut that he's running? Is this a, th- a place that you want to be at? What? What do you mean? Or Because your whole perspective going into this emergency podcast on Sunday was that Pete Carroll set this up and that we're blaming the offense for all of the problems that the Seahawks have. Yes. No, I, I still agree with that. Yeah. I think it's ridiculous. I mean, I think that, I don't know that the perspective needs to be put out here anymore because I think, I think people get it now. It's been put out there. But yes, the idea that the, uh, the unit that is currently second in DVOA is like the thing that needs to be fixed and can't be fixed is compared to the unit that's 24th. That's, Obviously ridiculous on its face. God, and 24th is a fucking miracle. It is. I agree. It's much better than you think. So one reason the Huskies, the Huskies, the Seahawks look better in DVOA than they do watching these games is they've just opponents, or in terms of yardage, is that opponents have just run so many more plays than the Seahawks. 
So that's a factor of third down conversions, as we talked about last week, which are going to regress to the mean to some extent in both regards. Sure. And the length of drives. Sometimes your defense is fucking trash. The Seahawks have some of the shortest drives in the NFL in terms of plays per drive on offense, and then the second longest plays per drive on defense. Oddly, the LA Rams, number one in that one, they are playing that bend but don't break successfully. Oh, I told you, I think the Rams defense is not good. We know your opinions. I mean, I might be, I guess, wrong. I, I'm wrong. I could be wrong about Stafford in the short term, but I'm not wrong about Stafford in the long term. Oh, you, you couldn't be wrong about Stafford in the short term. You are wrong. Let's, let's Three just, games? In the short term. You said the short term. That's the short term. All right, fine. Uh, I posted some notes this week on at Pelton Cast about the... Uh, well, first off, the note that the... Teams with no turnovers and at least seven yards per play are 12-2 and two over the last two seasons. The lone two losses coming from the Seattle Seahawks in Week 2 and the Seattle Seahawks in Week 3. So, yeah, I don't think it's the offense that's the problem here. But specifically about the difference between halves, because people are very concerned about that and what's changing in the second half. And I went and looked at this. So if you use... NFL Fast R to look at points scored on offense in the first half and the second half over the first three games of the season, which teams have dropped off the most from the first half to the second half, or just all teams, there's there's no predictive power from those first three, three games to the last 13. It's just completely random noise. But also, all the teams that have dropped off the most, so I went back to 1999, which is longer than I had on Twitter in that... The season of record. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, for the Mariners it's, or for the Seahawks it's the season that we talk about them being the Super Bowl 48 champions that's the season of record so the team the one team with a greater drop off was the 1999 St. Louis Rams the greatest show on turf wow. who won the Super Bowl now partially this because they were winning all their games by multiple <laughs> yeah games. yeah but they were just using trunk candidate to run up the middle in the second <laughs> half <laughs> trunk candidate wow uh I mentioned the Chiefs were way up there from 2019, which is when they won the Super Bowl. Uh, probably some similar things there, but these teams didn't necessarily have a big differential the rest of the season. Uh, they, you know, they had a slight bias in favor of the first half, but it's not dramatic. So there's no reason to expect this to continue. It's one of the, it's like I talked about with Russell Wilson's first six weeks versus last ten weeks last year. There's all these like small plays that make a huge difference. So they're hitting the third down here or a deep pass here in the first half, and they're not hitting that in the second half. And it's not, this is one of the things that really, really irks me, mm-hmm. is people assume that like whatever the, if you, whatever the split is, whichever the team is good, that's the real team, and they should just do that all the time. And the other one is the fake team, and if they can just stop doing that. But the answer is, the real team is all of it. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be worse than they've been in the first half going forward but they're going to be better than they've been in the second half going forward. And the net of that will then be a very good offense. But the 2015 second half. Like second half of games? Uh, oh, the second, no, the second well, half of the Seahawks oh, yeah, season. That was, that was legitimate. The greatest moment of our entire lives. The Literally better record. than winning the Super Bowl. <laughs> I don't know. The end of 2012 was pretty great, too. Oh, yeah. No, the 2013 season, take it or leave it. End of Rick 2000. It's of Seahawks seasons <laughs> under Russell Wilson. <laughs> 2012 second half. Dolphins or, or Bears on. Half. Starting the Bears game on. Yeah. Then 2013. Yeah, that was, dis- that was distant that was nice. four, distant fourth 2014. Well, the beginning of 2020. No, oh, yeah, the let Russ cook era. Oh god, that was great. Yeah. 
Short lived. Anyway, the real team was 2015 in the second half. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Before they played the Cardinals and the Rawls injury. Uh, no, because what do you mean before they played the Cardinals? Didn't they? They got killed. They lost to the Cardinals. No, really in that we won the DVOA Bowl against the Cardinals. Did they? Yeah, that was the year the Cardinals went to the or not to the Super Bowl, the, to the NFC Championship game. Okay, good, good. Didn't they have like a really brutal loss at the end of 2015? They might have, but definitely they played Arizona in Week 17. The Cardinals had already clinched the division, so it was mostly playing for pride. But the Seahawks played impressively for pride. God, that game at the Ravens, 35 to six. They lost oh. to the Rams, 23 to 17. Maybe that was the one that I was thinking of. That must be. Yeah. Uh, anyway, best season ever. <laughs> Hated football since, actually. Uh, I I don't know what to tell you. Like, you're probably right about this, but also you're wrong. Like, the Seahawks, the offense will be better in the second half. But do you think that they're going to be a better team than they've been so far? Where, where do they rank overall in DVOA? Eighth. Also, by the way, do you want to know what their playoff odds are? They're slightly better than 10%. Are they? Yeah. What do you think they actually are? I don't know. 47%. Are you kidding me? This <laughs> is fucking like, fan graph shit. We're like, like angry about fan graphs will not, they will, I'm sorry, they are one and two, and they're going to be, they're going, best case scenario, they're going to be two and three. I, I don't think that's the best case scenario. I mean, this game is not, it's not a toss-up, but it's not a 0% chance of winning. It's just, the season has been really frustrating. I agree. Frustrating, one of my f- f- common beliefs, frustrating should not be confused for bad. Pete Carroll bad, though? <laughs> well, Pete Carroll is both frustrating. Do, do you think His that, in-game coaching is bad. Do you think that Pete Carroll is doing Anything to positively influence the Seahawks winning games. Like once he gets on the sidelines and once the game starts. And before the game starts. And it might be locker room speeches. Let me ask you a question. You take Russell Wilson out of this team. Let's let's say you replace Russell Wilson with I don't Tyler Heineke. Oh, Matt Ryan. Let's replace him with Matt Ryan. Well fine. I don't know if you've looked at Matt Ryan's offense lately. They're 32nd in the league. Wow. They're 30th on defense. What's Some bad what's things are happening in Atlanta. Let's say you replace, or anybody, right? Jameis Winston, somebody like that, right? Okay. Are the Seahawks... I mean, they'd are, still beat Carson Wentz. Are they the worst team in the NFL? No. No, they're, they're not the worst team in the NFL, no. Are they the worst team that does not have a rookie, rookie starting quarterback in the NFL? No. Again, I've pointed you to Matt Ryan's stats. I don't even know what's also going the on. Lions. I mean, they're not. I think pl- the Seahawks not a without Russell Wilson contender. are worse than the Lions. I mean, Russell Wilson, by the way, is 15th in QPR thus far. QPR is very down on Russell Wilson's season. CPOE is very high on it. What? Who else on the team? DK like Metcalf, Tyler Lockett. They're, they're on the team. Are you saying they're not on the team? But these are players who are highly influenced by Russell Wilson. Sure. I think some of their after the after the catch work this season has been credit to them and not Russ. That's part of why his QBR is lower, I think. 
I think this is a very bad team masquerading as an average team because of what Russell Wilson is doing. And, you know, we talked about this for a second post-game post, post podcast. And the thing that was the worst to see, aside from the team on the field, uh, the defense, on Sunday was the healthy scratch for LJ Collier. And you look at it, and you look at these drafts that the Seahawks have had, and you look at LJ Collier, healthy scratch. You look at Rashad Penny, injured, but literally doesn't matter. Healthy scratch or fucking playing. It, you know, wouldn't have made a difference on the field, right, with Chris Carson being the starter. And there is such a void of talent on this team. I mean, you didn't even mention Malik McDowell. I mean, I don't think that was bad process necessarily, but certainly it was a bad outcome in terms of whether they got out of that draft pick. And look, Jordan Brooks is young and has his moments, but he's no KJ Wright, that's for sure. Has looked very bad. And I and I think the talent that this team has, especially on defense, like they have some good offensive players. It's hard to separate what is Russ and what is the receivers or whatever, right? But like you look at this team talent-wise and you say they have Russell Wilson, they have DK Metcalf, they have Tyler Lockett, they have Bobby Wagner, and... There's, there's a name notably absent for that list. Jamal Adams? Yeah. Cannot cover. Right, and I actually think I think Jamal Adams has maybe been put in a bad situation by the team, because I think his role is really hard to understand, and and I think that people do very well when they understand what their roles are, and I think that the Seahawks defense is all about figuring out what players' roles are, and I think Pete has not figured it out yet, and I don't know if people ever figure it out, right? There there was an improvement on defense when Jamal Adams was injured last year. Uh, I don't think there was. I think in the at the end it was not an improvement. No, I I think it's really hard to understand if he's a pass rusher or if he's a safety and is a defender. Like, if he's playing in the secondary, he should be playing in the secondary. And if he's a pass rusher, he should be a pass rusher. It's a position that occasionally you can kind of have a hybrid of both, but ultimately, in this Pete Carroll defense, the most important thing you can do is do your role well. And I don't think anybody involved is doing that. And they're trying to sort of shove Jamal Adams and his abilities. I also think that Jamal Adams, after watching him play for a year plus three games, I think the things that make people think that a defender is good, but actually they're not good, Jamal Adams does those things very well. And I'm not sure if the substantive pieces of what a defender does... Is that how that's pronounced? How do you pronounce it? Substantive? Substantive? There's not a second A in there. All right, we'll, we'll go with your pronunciation. I think the substantive pieces of what a defender does, Jamal Adams is not as good at those pieces, right? Are you making a note of to, to make fun of my pronunciation? No, I'm looking this up. What are you looking up? Oh, it's spelled. Oh. The... <laughs> But you understand what I'm saying? Like, Jamal Adams does flashy things. He comes out of nowhere and makes tackles, but he doesn't cover, right? I mean, I like, he makes sacks. He did cover in the, with the Jets. So I, I don't know so that I'm So it's a Pete Carroll problem, it. or it's a Ken Norton problem? Yeah, I mean, look, everyone thought this was the, if not the best safety in the NFL. Certainly Are one of the sure, top though? safeties. Because it's really hard to judge what what is good and what is 
fucking NFL players 100. My counter argument to you is that in the NBA, people will make this argument about guys that get a lot of steals and blocks, but aren't as good as one-on-one defenders. And it turns out everyone is fucking wrong about that. That steals and blocks are way more valuable than all the other stuff combined. Coming out of where nowhere and cleaning up tackles are not the same as steals and blocks. If all he did was make sacks and interceptions, I'd be like, great. Well, let's get it with Jamal. He did make a lot of sacks and interceptions in the Jets. When? With the Jets. He doesn't do that on the Seahawks. Well, yeah, but he's only being coached by Pete Carroll on the Seahawks. There's no like alternate world multiverse where we can look okay, at fine. Pete Carroll Pete not Carroll's coaching fine. Jamal Adams on the Seahawks. Not the bad. only place Pete he's Carroll's been coached by not Pete Carroll is the Jets. Also bad at coaching Jamal Adams too but at least the special teams is terrible no. <laughs> if you want a silver lining the special, special teams, teams not as good are... as you'd think oh god Michael Dixon's punts not not as good as you oh, think don't even bring up that Jason Myers missed his first field goal in a season plus but the kickoffs have been outstanding oh great I, I just I, I don't know if your best case scenario is that Jamal Adams used Jamal to be Adams good. did not have very many interceptions for the record, but he did force three fumbles in 2018, two and 19. I don't know what he does anymore. He He's not worth two first round draft picks. I don't know what anyone on this defense does anymore. I don't even, I mean, like, I mean, like, look, maybe the greatest defender in, well, Cortez Kennedy's the greatest defender in Seahawks history. Is Bobby Wagner having a good season? Like, has he made Bo- plays? Bobby is I guess do, the sack doing against his Tennessee. best. I, I, I've seen Bobby Wagner out there cleaning up some tackles. But the thing is, the thing about football is that one individual defender does not matter that much. Yeah, it's, a wink, it's a wink link. That is why sport. you don't trade two first-round picks for Jamal Adams. Like, they have fucked up in every single scenario. What I keep hearing is that John Schneider is the problem here. I as actually, much as Pete Carroll's in-game coaching is frustrating, we, we, we who's the one back, who drafted... All of these guys who have contributed nothing. Who's the one who traded you for Javon? You know who drafted I mean, these players. But sure, okay. I mean, like, both dude, of, the, both they of are them together. are involved. When, when there might be a time that Pete Carroll is, retires or whatever and Sean Schneider is still here, and maybe we'll see. But they're... they're this is fair. They are linked with what they do right now. But if you're saying the issue is that they don't have the talent. They then, don't have the talent. If I'm saying the issue is they don't have the talent when Trey Flowers and DJ Reed are starting, well, like, what do you mean that the first round draft pick that they made two years ago, three years ago, is is a healthy scratch? Yeah, I, I'm not disagree. I'm just saying. Do you disagree that they don't have the talent? Not necessarily the coach's responsibility. The talent at the front office is responsibility. What? And obviously, sure. the coach is involved in the front office. Okay, here. and so the fact that the, the silver lining is the GM <laughs> is also bad. <laughs> I'm just saying, I don't, I don't know, man. I mean, they don't have good football players on defense and they don't have enough of them. The question that I had was, do you think that there are, I've had, I've had this thought about offensive linemen, right? Granted, there's so many offensive, line, the, the standard for being a good offensive lineman is probably too high, right? Everything should be judged on the same level, right? But we're like, we know that there are good wide receivers and we know that there are bad wide receivers or whatever, but offensive linemen were like, oh, there's two good offensive lines. And it's like, well, half the offensive lines are good and half the offensive lines are bad. I mean, I don't know if I would exactly say that. It's probably a bell curve distribution. But you, you understand what I'm saying, right? Yes. That this whole idea that like, well, like it, refereeing is probably the most obvious example. People will say, well, there's no good referees. Well, like, okay, if 
the alternative referees are not any good. If like your complaint is about NBA refereeing, but the college basketball referees aren't any good and the FIBA referees aren't any good. And now that I watch a lot of high school basketball, but I haven't seen a lot of <laughs> high school refs that are better than NBA refs, then maybe the problem is your standards and not the NBA referees. Yes. It, it all has to be judged based upon what's actually happening, right? Correct. Fair and, expectations. And I think, like, for wide receivers, it's like we talk about with recruiting, right? There's so many four-star recruits at running back and not that many four, or wide receiver and whatever. Not that many four-star recruits at, at linemen. But, like, they're all still the same quantity of people playing football, right? So, like, it's really just how we judge these things. And I have... Yes, so if you wanted to game the recruiting rankings, you would just never recruit any offensive linemen, only recruit quarterbacks. And you'd probably look great, right? Recruiting rankings-wise, but your team would be fucking awful. Yeah. But... These recruiting rankings are not life. The the amount of... So that's... With with offensive linemen, I think the amount of teams that you consider as having a good offensive line, it's probably three, right? Like, there's so few teams that you're like, they have a good offensive line, when in reality, it is... The, the having an average offensive line or whatever by outside standards is actually having a good offensive line. Mm, but are you considered how good the offensive lines were in 1998? It's the a good season point. of record for people discussing offensive yeah, yeah, line. Kevin Moai did nothing wrong. But, but I'm, I'm curious if the same thing is true now because offenses are so good at passing the ball about secondary players, about cornerbacks. That the idea of good and bad cornerbacks, we have to really rethink this in a way that I don't know the amount like I the amount of tweets I saw about Richard Sherman and teams that needed to sign Richard Sherman increases a lot every single week, and it's like you know what? Maybe offenses by having the ability to run wherever the fuck they want without telling you where they're running, and also have motion side to side pre snap. They're just going to fucking beat defenses. This is the world that we're living in. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if the idea of good cornerbacks really exists. I mean, I think it gets back to what you said earlier about strong link versus wink link systems. So wide receiver play is a strong link system. You're as good as your best receiver, generally speaking. Obviously, you're not explicitly that good. Whereas... Offensive lines and then defense in general are weak link systems where if one offensive lineman gets beat, it doesn't matter how well the other four block. It's still going to be a problem. Same thing at cornerback play. You could have the greatest shutdown corner of all time on one side. And if the other side you can't defend, it doesn't matter because you don't, it's, you don't have to throw at the shutdown corner. So I think teams are always going to have a need in weak link positions because they're always looking at their weakest link as opposed to with receivers, you're not as concerned with who's our weakest link. That's, Does that make sense? No, it's, I think it's a great way to explain it, though. And cor- I think cornerback and secondary in general are weak link systems and same with offensive line. I mean, all of def- defense really is weak link, but yeah, cornerback, secondary in particular, because I guess, uh, yeah, pass rush probably is a strong link situation. It doesn't matter if your fourth best pass I, rusher. I, I think pass rush is like a second strong link situation. But yeah, yes. I mean, there's a synergistic aspect to it for sure. But again, the weakest link isn't as important. Linebacker play, the weak link, the weakest player might be important. Yeah, Jordan Brooks. Um <laughs> But do you sometimes, under, do you sometimes Cody Martin, though. 
I, I'm not sure, and I think if that's the case, the things that matter more, like, I just don't want to look at this and say, Trey Flowers sucks, right? Like, I don't believe no, that I, that's the case. I think Trey Flowers, when he said that this, they, they but, were... But also, I don't know that we have any reason to think Trey Flowers is good. The reason that people might think Trey Flowers is good is that he started a lot of games for the Seattle Seahawks. Because <laughs> he was a sixth-round pick. If, yeah, I, no, I, I think we're even seeing this, though, in that corners are starting to be drafted much earlier than they've ever been drafted. And it's always like, you know, the players who are drafted surprisingly high seem to be corners often, right? Like J.C. Horn this year. People are understanding that it's very hard to find good cornerbacks now, which is to say that it's a weak link. It's which is a, to say that you shouldn't trade away all your first-round picks and should maybe use some of those on corners. But even if the Seahawks used every single one of those on corners, I don't know if we'd say that corner was set necessarily. I think that ultimately, if if you can't find talent, so to say, right? Like if you're not, if it's a weak link system and you're not going to be able to go out there and find talent that is going to ultimately change. You can't sign Josh Gordon or whatever on a fucking random Tuesday. If that's not going to be the case, the system is more important than anything else. And the Seahawks are running a dated system and a system that is not putting their players into a good position. And to me, that's the biggest issue. And the players are saying it. They are telling us exactly what is happening. They're saying on third downs, if it is a third and three, we're defending eight yards back. This is like Nick fucking Holt as the defensive coordinator here, Ooh, right? Wow. Like, I'm sorry, Ooh. but that's... We they were what were the Vikings nine of fourteen on third downs? Sounds right. Because it was easy for them on third downs. If that's the case, it is easy. And Pete Carroll was unwilling to hear it. And if I have to say there's if there is anything wrong with Pete Carroll outside of being a now bad football coach, it is that he is unable to accept responsibility. He'll take responsibility in the conceptual over oversight. Everything is his, but. On a, on a granular, tangible level, he will never accept responsibility for that. And sometimes your system fucking sucks. I mean, I think that, I don't think that Pete Carroll is as rigid as his detractors will sometimes have you believe. We have seen the Seahawks make dramatic adjustments at times. Certainly their willingness to embrace motion offensively is a dramatic change. <clears throat> have they really embraced motion offensively? Are you willing to go so far as to say that they've embraced that? Because I, I'm I not. Am, I'm I, willing, think, I don't know that I'm willing to say that they've embraced tempo offensively, given the tweet that their you know, situation neutral time to snap has decreased each week thus far. <sighs> but I do think the motion part of it. So I don't think that Pete Carroll is unwilling to change things, but I do think defensively there's probably more commitment to his philosophy because of the fact that that's his philosophy for you whereas the offense it's only the guiding principles of balance are his philosophy so yeah i don't know don't know how things get better football is bad and kellen moore is the only person who can save this <laughs> okay right imagine Pete carroll is no longer the coach of the seahawks and kellen moore is how excited would we be? Well, yeah. 
Uh, that was Pat Thorman, by the way, at, at Pat underscore Thorman, who had the uh, the pace tweet on offense. I, I, I'm not certain that the pace is. I mean, the offense looked good and then kind of randomly looked bad, but we talked about that. Yeah, I mean, I think the say. pace is overrated. I, I agree with that. I, I, but, I'm not convinced that the pace that Pete Carroll was like slow it down in that game. I think Pete Carroll may have been slow it down. Well, he's like our defense. Fucking sucks. They can't be on field for forty-five minutes. Probably did not say that. The defense that I fielded, that I'm in charge of, is god awful. The guy is optimistic about everything except his abilities, his offense's ability to pick up a single fourth down. But the the other piece, I guess, if we want to touch on the positivity of they're really bad at drafting. Um, the other positivity is that P. Carroll does not know what's going on, which is to say, yeah, I, mean, I thought like Sean Dugar, the Pelton brother, had a really nice piece today about the number of public disconnects we've seen between what Pete Carroll has said and what the players have said the last couple of weeks. It's, uh, it's, it's not nut end of an era stuff, but sometimes winning games solves that. <laughs> so the San Francisco 49ers, yeah, yeah, yeah. the San Francisco 49ers who are two and one having won their first two on the road versus the lions and the Eagles before a 30 to 28 loss on Sunday night to the green Bay Packers on Mason Crosby's field goal at the buzzer, number 12 in DVOA with 10, 19, and four splits. They are they are good at special teams. Uh, projected for 10.2 wins with a 62% chance of making the playoffs by football outsiders. So one of the three NFC West teams out of the Seahawks at one and two. Jimmy Garoppolo is fifth so far in expected points added per play, but barely better than average than in CPOE, sort of the reverse combination of Russell Wilson, who is second in completion percentage over expected, uh, according to rbsdm.com behind Teddy Bridgewater. One reason for the discrepancy, obviously, is that EPA also factors in run plays. And Jimmy G, if you learned one thing from Tom Brady, it's how to sneak. There we go. The man is very good at sneaking. Has picked up five first downs or touchdowns on run plays, wow. according to Garber's football like. reference. Channeling that Bay Area, Bay Area brethren. <laughs> we haven't seen a lot of number three pick Trey Lance yet. His only pass went for a touchdown in week one. That also, was his only pass? Yep. Dang. Also ran for a crucial one-yard touchdown at the end of the first half on Sunday. But his other three yards runs. Just wait till he faces the Seahawks defense. Well, All of a sudden, we'll see a lot of Trey Lance. Combined we'll two yards. Uh, Debo Samuel playing like a true number one receiver thus far with 20 catches for 334 yards and a touchdown through three weeks. No other receiver has more than five catches. Apologies to Brandon Ayuk owners. <laughs> droppers, current, <laughs> current droppers. Every time I look in like best flex options, he comes up and I'm like, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, George Kittle has been fairly quiet by his standards thus far with 15 catches for 187 yards through the first three weeks. The 49ers running back room has been hit hard by injuries for a second straight season, actually. Lost Raheem Mostert to a season-ending knee injury in Week 1, then Jamichael Hasty to a high ankle sprain in Week 2 that's put him on IR. Jeff Wilson Jr. was already on the pup list due to May meniscus surgery. Third-round pick Trey Sermon suffered a concussion in his Week 2 debut, and Elijah Mitchell sat out last week due to a shoulder injury, leaving Sermon as the starter against the Packers. He was not particularly good, finishing with 31 yards on 10 carries. They haven't gotten much out of end arounds from their wide receivers this season, and yet the 49ers are still seventh in rush DVOA, largely due to their short yardage prowess. And it's then, all Jimmy? <laughs> Jimmy G and Trey Lance, man. And then Jim Michael Heisty did was quite good on his 10 carries. Wow. 
<laughs> uh, the defense. You never, you never knew that Jimmy G was going to be carrying this Russian <laughs> offense. Yeah. All this talk about like, and imagine how good the Kyle Shanahan run game is going to be with Trey Lance. It's like, no, Jimmy G's Jimmy got G's this. The one. Uh, the defense has been a disappointment thus far. They were second in DVOA in 2019 and sixth, despite the injuries they suffered last year, but just 19th so far. Nick Bosa has three sacks Tom in Robert's his Holland. return. <clears throat> that's true. But uh, that's half the team's total with D. Ford making little impact. And their cornerback play has been an issue without Richard Sherman. And I suppose in some small amount with a, without a Kello Witherspoon. <laughs> uh, veteran Josh Norman signed ahead of week one, left Sunday's game with a chest injury and was actually taken to the hospital after spitting up oh blood per Ian Rappaport of the NFL Network. But because this is the NFL, he still hopes to play this week. Uh, nickel corner Kwan Williams is out a few weeks with calf strain. That brought rookie Demandre Lenore into the lineup. He played both spots opposite veteran Emmanuel Mosley. There's no good corners. And it definitely checks out when you have as many injuries there as the Niners do. Uh, They're also allowing 4.7 yards per attempt on the ground, the seventh highest in the NFL. So wait for the Seahawks to establish that run. It's going to be an interesting game. <laughs> you know the the Seahawks. I would say this is maybe the the most desperate they've been in any particular game in the Pete Carroll era. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, week three in two thousand sixteen after the Cam Chancellor holdout. I mean, they were playing like the Bengals. No, the Buccaneers. I don't know. Someone terrible at home. They started out on two, right? Yeah, and barely won week three. No, the the Dolphins? It was someone very bad. I think it was the Dolphins. This is a it's a desperate team though for the Seahawks. Like they, they need a victory more than anything in this game, right? And I think that's going to be impressed upon them. Which is to say they kind of blew it in week two in a winnable game. And then they went into Minnesota and Kirk Cousins fucking roasted this defense. Yeah, it was 2015 by by the way, and it was the Bears who were starting Jimmy Clausen at quarterback, who had nine of, completed nine of 17 passes for 63 yards. In Sadly, a it's a Jimmy G, not a Jimmy <laughs> oh, C. No. They did not trail in that one. They won 26 to nothing, but it was six nothing at halftime. Walking through that door, and this is not even the Trustman era beer, Bears. This is Kyle Shanahan, and I I just have a really hard time understanding how the Seahawks are going to get the 49ers off the field. If we saw a week ago, this Vikings offense have wide open receivers streaking down the field, players in the Seahawks secondary who looked like they had no idea where they were supposed to be. What is going to change in this game against, again, an offensive scheme that is as good or better than the Vikings scheme that we saw last week. I mean, highly similar, obviously Shanahan, like Sean McVay comes from that Kubiak literally tree. learned from Gary Kubiak, which yeah. Clint Kubiak probably learned a thing thing or two from, right? Yeah, yes. It's kind of all part of the same tree, but like they're going to be wide open receivers in this game. And is there going to be pass rush? I can't confidently say that there's going to be. It's really kind of like pass rushes. Pass rush is the kind of great neutralizer of everything. And if you don't have that, you can make up for having a shoddy secondary if you have that. But if you don't, and I'm, it really depends on how much you think Benson Mayo is a game changer, right? 
Was Benson Mayo out? Yeah. He, oh. he, he was a scratch last week. Hmm. There was that one phenomenal Daryl Taylor play. But if those things are not the case, the Niners are going to have players running wide open down the field. And I'm just not convinced, aside from the idea of randomness for third downs, that they're not going to pick up 75% of their third downs in this game. Yeah. I don't know that I can say that I'm optimistic about it. I mean, I guess you could hope that we mentioned the 49ers run defense has not been very good. If the Seahawks can in fact establish Chris Carson and that feel allows them to feel more comfortable using more play action and have longer drives and the defense isn't on the field as long. I mean, maybe there's some benefit to that. Best case scenario, the Seahawks want to shoot out though. Seems likely, but I mean, they've done it before. It's been a while. Yeah. Also, the Seahawks are generally very good in prime time. I've not gotten a prime time game yet. This is not prime time, isn't it? Oh no, this is Sunday afternoon. You're right. Man, I'm way off today. <laughs> it's okay. Pete Carroll's been way off for the last oh, six seasons. Oh no. What? Just Pete Carroll being way uh, off. <laughs> it's been a while. Oh no. Uh, otherwise, there there are no changes that are going to happen, right? Like. Sidney Jones playing, I would fucking love to see that. We Sidney Jones is the cornerback of record. I'm just going on. I'm just team Blasson Austin to get away from the Sidney Jones faction. Sidney Jones cannot be worse than Trey Flowers. It seems unlikely. But also, I just don't. I don't think Trey Flowers as an individual player is that bad. I think the scheme is that bad. I think the communication is that bad. I think everything else is that bad. And the way that you structure a defense and the idea of movement and motion with regards to a defense, I think is something that Pete Carroll at 70 years old is not a thing. Like when he was learning from fucking Bud Kiffin, uh, Bud Grant, Bud Grant, right? They're not talking about motion with regard to the defense here. You know what I mean? Like we're talking advanced level football that has changed. This is what football will look like in five to 10 years, but that's not what football is going to look like to Pete Carroll, right? This is NBA teams. People thought that the the wildcat was going to be what football looked like in five years, 10 years ago. You had the chance. 15 years ago. You have the chance to move around however you'd like freely as a defense and defenses don't choose to do that. They say, I mean, Pete Carroll defenses. You have that option on, out of bounds plays in basketball or soccer, and teams smaller don't choose field. to do that. We literally just talked about that. It is a smaller okay, playing well, field. Soccer isn't a smaller field. That you score way less goals. I, I don't. There's know what a that person is. there standing to block the ball, right? Like there's levels to it in soccer. All you need is ten yards. If all you needed was to pass the ball ten yards in soccer to get a first down and do that over and over and over again, it would be very successful. So I don't know what you're talking about. They're not comparable things. Just, you just need ten yards to get a first down against the goddamn Seahawks, and you do it seventy-five percent of the time. That, Everybody does it if you're not Carson Wentz. I mean, the reason that I believe in at snap motion in particular on offense is because it's been established that there's a higher EPA in plays with at snap motion than plays without them. It has not been established that there's a higher, lower, in this case, EPA play, per play defensively. We're at the very beginning of the shit. Okay, but we're, we're at the very beginning of a lot of things that don't actually turn into anything. Wow. 
Everything you're at the beginning of at some point. <laughs> Esports. God. <laughs> I mean, are we sick of that yet? <laughs> NFTs. I haven't talked about them in months. <laughs> I don't know. Now that, Clubhouse. Now nobody's that, on that fucker. Now that Tom Brady has an NFT ad, I assume it's that's the end, right? NFTs or Tom Brady has an NFT ad? Yeah, you didn't see that. Uh-oh. I saw I saw a lot of ads because I wasn't watching Red Zone. I was watching the like four different game broadcasts oh. on Sunday. Yeah. The city of New York, over. <laughs> I also haven't watched it. This will be my this week will be my first red zone of the season, other than a T-Mobile Park. Wow! So <sighs> I'm ready. Anyway, I just I, I I have a really hard time conceiving the Seahawks winning this game. Like they went into San Francisco last year and couldn't beat that team with all those injuries. No, they well. First off, neither of those things is true. They they did not play in San Francisco. I mean Santa Clara? Oh, they played in Phoenix. Yes. In that game. And they won, didn't they? Yeah, they won twenty six twenty three. Oh well, nice. the season finale. Nice W. Um uh, I have a really hard time seeing them win this game though. And if they do, it's going to come down to Russell Wilson. And what he can do and this offense. And it would be winning a shootout. But you have to keep the firepower going. And I, I, I'm just not I'm not convinced that on either side of the ball that a Pete Carroll team can keep the firepower going. The defense obviously can't stop anybody. But can they keep the tempo up? Can they keep the motion up? Can they keep the play action up? They've had a very hard time with it so far. And you talk about the first and second half splits, like maybe those aren't the case. But they need to score a lot of points, and I don't think they're approaching these games as a team that needs to score a lot of points. Pete Carroll fucking said it to us. He said it to us on Monday morning. Hey, I'm actually not trying to win these games. He said, I think that the defense can get the ball back even though they have shown me that they cannot get the ball back, and that is not a way to win a game. And I think there is a 38% chance of winning this one. (laughs) <laughs> this is one of those amusing ones where we like have totally different tones. I think there's a forty percent chance of winning this game. So we're we're in the same ballpark here. But there, you can't conceive of them winning and I I think there's a, a chance of it, but it's less likely than none. So football's dumb. On that note. Actually, football is very fun because this stuff is fun, right? Like it's innovative. And and what you do with football, people don't get this. This is a pro football argument. Not a pro football argument, a pro football argument. No, weirdly, I hate college football in every way, but actually college football is kind of fun. I mean, college football, the style of play is fun. It's just I have no emotional investment in the games unless they involve Pac-12 teams. Uh, Or Rudy against Notre Dame. Jake Hayner. Oh, did nothing wrong. There's actually the only person I care about in all of college football (laughs) is Jake Hayner. You're just leading the Jake Hayner. Oh my campaign. god! First first round pick. If Jake Hayner is not drafted in the first twenty five picks, somebody has made a mistake. I don't. I don't think that Jake Hayner is getting that much NFL buzz. Is he? People are not paying attention. Derek Carr somehow when when he was the first pick in the second are round, you, right? But are you, uh, yes. Jake what are Hayner. You aware of how tall? Six foot one. I looked it up. Jake Hayner is NFL height. Jake Hayner is the best quarterback in all of college football. But the point is that Derek Carr is six foot three. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, 
Football is a very fun sport, though, and that's why we pay attention to this, because it's fun to think about these things. And the idea of motion, like, it is it is an extraordinarily structured sport when anybody else is participating in it except for Pete Carroll. And we have to have Pete Carroll as our coach. And it's really frustrating that in a time, in all of human history, right, humans have been around for six million years or whatever, and that in this moment of human history— Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson had to be paired with each other at the same fucking time. I mean, it did produce a Super Bowl in a second trip to the uh, <laughs> okay. Super Bowl. Uh, Jake, Eight years ago. Yahoo, per Yahoo Sports, Jake Hayner inches up quarterback rankings. He's moved up to, uh, the draft rankings. He's moved up to ninth from last week's tied for 10th. I'm telling you right now, Jake Hayner will be drafted similar to t- Kyler Gordon within the first three days. <laughs> Okay. Well, within the, the first three days, the first, the the, before Saturday. Okay. I have not seen a better quarterback in college football than Jake Hayner. Granted, he's playing against Pac-12 defenses. <laughs> football is a fun sport when people who aren't Pete Carroll are playing it. Oh, I mean, if Pete Carroll were out there playing, <laughs> no, that wouldn't be very fun, actually. He played in the secondary. What? On that note. Thanks for listening. Thanks.